listening to the podcast edition of One Love, One Planet. Southgate with One Love, One Planet. Um, and I'm joined in the studio today by the founder of Bristol's Wild Oats Natural Food Shop. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Lovely to have you on the show. Um, okay, let's have some news. The Pacific country of um, Vanuatu has launched one of the world's most ambitious climate policies, committing to 100% renewable energy and electricity generation by 2030 and ambitious targets on loss and damage. Vanuatu is already a carbon-negative country, meaning it absorbs more emissions than it produces, but it has committed to going further by phasing out fossil fuels almost entirely and hoping to become 100% renewable in electricity by 2030. Rishi Sunak has been accused of undermining the government's climate policy as he vowed to boost the production of oil and gas in the North Sea through a new deregulation drive. He said he will order a new licensing round for oil and gas drilling permits sorry, immediately with a further round from 2024 if he becomes PM. Climate campaigners told The Independent that his proposals are utterly bewildering. Um, and I also checked out Liz Truss, just her sort of um, climate uh, a sort of profile. She loves the countryside. She doesn't like solar panels, particularly in the countryside, in fields. Um, And somebody posted a photograph of solar panels above crops and said, does she realise we can actually do both at once, grow crops and have solar panels? She doesn't like wind turbines. She cut subsidies to solar power when she was environment minister and she supports fracking. She has links to climate sceptic think tanks and has criticised her own government's attempts to reduce pollution from wood stoves. Um, And she supports a third runway at Heathrow and actually has also voiced support for a fourth, but also was very in support of COP26. So if she does become PM, maybe things will look a bit different. Let's certainly hope so. Um, Now, in slightly better news, um, in order to reduce the amount of plastic that makes its way from rivers to the ocean, co-founder of non-profit um, Coastbusters, Klaas van Delft, developed a new way to stop plastic from migrating that won't disrupt fish or ship traffic. It's called the Great Bubble Barrier. And it's a diagonal curtain of bubbles that guides plastics to the surface and then to a catchment system on the side of the waterway. Um, Katwake, I think that's pronounced, a city in the Netherlands, became the home of the first river bubble barrier in the world. And it's expected to remove from between 86 to 90 percent of the plastic pollution in that river. So that sounds like a good idea. Um, Mike, Mm -hmm. does that mean anything to you that kind of engineering does it sound sounds like a intriguing good um the, the the town is called Katwijk oh it's, thank uh, you <laughs> oh god of course you would know wouldn't you um now where are we yes emissions in Bristol dropped by a fifth in 2020 because of lockdown restrictions according to new data they fell from 556 
100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide in 2019 to 443.5 thousand tonnes in 2020. The 20% drop emissions in Bristol was larger than the decline over the previous decade. So it's interesting to see what's possible Um, because obviously we need to move very fast on that front. Um, Now, this happened a few weeks ago, but definitely worth mentioning. Um, Friends of the Earth, the Good Law Project and Zero Hour and I think others took the UK government to court and won when the UK High Court ruled that the government's net zero strategy does not sufficiently detail how it will meet its emission targets. The plan was judged to be too vague to meet legally binding targets, rendering it unlawful under sections 13 and 14 of the Climate Change Act 2008. Judge Holgate recommended that the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy produce a report outlining how the government will reach statutory targets. Come April 2023, this revised plan will be presented to Parliament. So that's a good thing. We need transparency on all this stuff. We need need to be able to to see how things are being judged. Um, Detail. yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, detail. The devil is in the detail. Um, So that, uh, this seems to be where things are going, that people, children, taking governments to court. Um, And we will always try and inform you about these kinds of things that are going on. Um, And then just a couple of uh, bits of information that I just thought it good to know about. Africa has tremendous wind potential. It has enough wind to power itself 250 times over and generate 90 times the wind power currently generated by the rest of the world. Algeria alone could generate 11 times more wind power than the world's current capacity. Um, And there is a 60-acre eco-farm in Moorhead, Kentucky, which is among the largest climate-controlled indoor farms in the US. It's chemical-free, non-GMO, which is genetically modified organisms, and grown with 100% rainwater. Um, Now, of course, there was... (laughs) There was some information last week about rainwater not necessarily being desperately healthy because it's full of forever chemicals, as they seem to call them. Um, so I'm presuming that could you put rainwater through some sort of filter? Yes. Like, yeah? yeah, this is what we need to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I did. I made a mental note to myself that I need to find out if there are such things. Um, all these things we need to be working on. If we could go back to the bit about solar panels and and farms. Yes. One thing that puzzles me is we have so many open-air car parks, such as around uh, Cribs Causeway. What's to stop putting solar panels over the car parks? Mm. That'll serve Mm. two purposes. One, you've got a great solar farm. And two, it protects the cars in various kinds of weather. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, It it seems a no-brainer to me. Absolutely, absolutely. Mike, is this right? You're an aeronautical engineer. That yeah. was your former life. Yes. Right. Uh, which, is mean, which is an engineer rather than a scientist. 
Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, oh, but is an engineer not a scientist? Well, <coughs> oh, okay, <laughs> this is interesting. The, the way the story goes, and you can believe this or not, but basically, the scientist thinks about things and produces theories. The engineer makes it work. Right, but what does that make you then? Are you half scientist, half artist? No. <laughs> or is there a name? Is there a? Is there, not really. No, so you don't I basically and just a fixer. Just make a, things work. Just a fixer, he says. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to speak to Mike, as I do with all my guests, um, before we sort of meet together in the studio. Um, just you know, so we know how the conversation is going to go. And we were supposed to be talking all about wild oats, which we will be talking about. Um, but first, I was just saying, so have you always been in Bristol? And you said no. So let's find out where you were. So before you were in Bristol. I'm not going to go right back to the North Sea bit. I want to start with Holland and we'll go to North Sea if we've got time. Okay. But can you tell us what were you, it was Holland you were living in before Bristol, yes. is that right? Yeah. So what were you doing there? What was your former life? Uh, my former life was as an en- what we call an environmental test engineer for uh, space programs for the European Space Agency. So we were designing tests to reproduce all the kinds of environments that a spacecraft, be it a satellite or a rocket, might experience. Um, what, so what kind of environments would that be? Okay, everything from the basic transport of the vehicle. Um, if, you go, if you've got a very delicate piece of equipment and it's got to travel by road somewhere, you really want to make sure it's protected. And then at the other end of the spectrum, if you've got a satellite up in space with the sun trying to fry it on one side and deep space on the other side trying to take it to minus 273 degrees centigrade, you've got to work on how to protect it, how to make it withstand these extremes. Nightmare. So, of course, I just think about this. You... And all the people you worked with, you were the sort of heroes of Apollo 13, weren't you? You were the people who were, or people like you, were you're precisely doing, trying to get that um, module, or what was it? What was it called? The capsule? The capsule, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those kinds of problems are mind-boggling, really. Yeah. And it, it's engineers who generally have to sort the problems out. The scientists will come up with the theories, mm. and then the, scienti- the engineers make them work. Yeah, which is obviously the harder. Yeah. And it's all very well, isn't it, coming up with the theory, as you say. Um, and so what, did, what projects did you work on as much of interest? Uh, my first programme in Holland was a satellite called COSB, which was a cosmic ray uh, satellite. It was basically looked like a, a bit of a dustbin, really. It was just a circular drum thing that went up into space. But it did a very good job and... Um, it lasted for several years longer than its design life because it was so well put together and so well thought through. Amazing! I did actually see, I think, the lunar module at the, the Science Museum mm-hmm. and I was really surprised at how small it was and how, in a way, given what we're used to seeing today, it kind of almost looked like it had been made on Blue Peter with the inside of a sugar puff packet. You know, it, was, <laughs> it just seemed so sort of basic in some ways, but it's quite phenomenal. Mm. Um, now, how long were you doing that for? I was in uh, Holland for about six and a half years. Right. And one of, the, 
one of the things I found very interesting was you were talking about the, the, the sort of political constraints. So you weren't just up against trying to make these things work, but you were also sort of constrained in how you could do it. Yeah. Um, typically, um, you'd get two or three massive consortia uh, tendering for the programme, a particular satellite programme. And they would have to have um, various countries represented in that consortium. And uh, what used to ha- what happened in my experience was a particular consortium won the contract technically. Mm-hmm. Because sorry, was Mike, can I just check? Is this because it's an EU programme? An EU programme, yes. And therefore you had sorry, to yes. have... Right, yeah, yes. OK. Sorry, go on. Yeah, sorry, go on. So as it's an EU programme, you've got about 10 different countries forming part of the consortium. And what would happen was one consortium would be head and shoulders above another consortium and they would get all the marks and then it would go to the politicians who would then say, no, sorry, you can't do that because the geographical distribution of the work is wrong. You're giving work to northern Spain, it needs to go to southern Spain. You're giving it to northern Italy, it should go to... So, and... These things are constrained by a timeline, let's say five years, and the launch date is fixed. You cannot change the launch date. Oh my God. So you've okay. started on the program, mm-hmm. you've awarded a contract, it's mm-hmm. been bounced, you've lost a year, mm-hmm. and now you've only four years to get another uh, team together, build a satellite and launch it. Four years, that's nothing. And then... There would be other problems because by that time you've got the consortium that's politically correct, but they haven't got the skills in the areas. So, for example, you might be teaching, I mean, exaggerating here, but you might be teaching a bicycle factory how to make solar panels. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. And is that literally what, I'm obviously not teaching, so is that literally what you had to do? You had to train companies in a new line of manufacturing or something yeah or, or uh, yeah basically uh, some some were already uh, in the business like it might be a small aircraft manufacturer uh, but they hadn't experience of building spacecraft quality material and so he had to go in there and make sure that they could do it right do you know this has just reminded me just on a slight side note um, during the very first months of covid when we desperately needed ppe on twitter i kept seeing when and we had we there was a massive shortage um i kept seeing companies tweeting saying we have emailed the government to say we can produce this stuff we are experts in this field i have rung i have emailed i've sent letters i've heard nothing and then you hear that companies I don't know, like Dyson, that produce Hoovers, they've been awarded the contract. And I'm wondering if it, I, I don't know, it, it is, it's politics getting in the way of science, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yes. And, and there is a lot of that going on as well, the Old Boys Act. Um, yeah. There's always the Old Boys Act. But that works in industry as well. I mean, it, there are very few industries that haven't got mm. business politics going on as well, mm. where friends of friends uh, get contracts uh, mm. ahead mm. of people who are really ought to and deserve to get the crazy crazy that's life we need absolutely well it is life isn't it but you see i'm always somebody who just gets really angry about it and exercise (laughs) and wants complete transparency and wants sort of accountability and wants to know why the company that is can do it who is expert i mean i do understand you know it's yeah it's never simple um 
But just going back, there was another interesting element that I think people would also be interested to know about, where you were talking about test because we're basically talking. You you have an, a number of frustrations, didn't you, when you were doing this job? And you also talked about the problem of testing. Can you tell tell us about that? Oh, um, I think you might have been talking about what we call the verification program. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, the way it goes is this. Um, If we were testing things, quite often we wouldn't be consulted in the design stage when we could actually put in input from our experience of the way things break. So uh, you'd get something that would come along and you'd break it. And (laughs) they'd blame you for breaking it rather than go back to the... Anyway, they had to go back to to redesign. So this cost money and caused delays. So rather than getting us in at the beginning... Um, they just decided that uh, they had to cut the cost of testing. So what do you do? You get a verification program, which is paperwork. You get people designing a, a piece of structure, and then by asking the correct questions, hopefully, you tick them off and say, yes, we've done that, yes, we've done that, yes, it should survive. But inevitably, a test will reveal the things you've forgotten. We're human we program a real test. Yeah, a real test. A real test, yeah. yeah. Mm. So the story goes about the um, Hubble telescope mirror not working when it went up into space. Now, if they'd have done the proper testing on that, they'd have found that out long before it was launched. Crazy. And you, because you can reproduce conditions on Earth, can't you? Because people might say, well, you can't test for something going into space. You won't know until it's in space. There, there are lots of things you can do. For right. example... Um, you can um, accommodate the fact there's zero gravity by doing various tests. Mm. Um, Solar simulation, you you can... uh, And and vacuum, hard vacuum. Um, What what people may not realise is that plastics evaporate. That's why they crack with age, because the solvents in them disappear. Um, And in space, because you've got a vacuum, some plastics will evaporate faster than others. Now, these solvents that go off will condense on any cold surface, which might be a mirror or a lens. Mm. And so the mirror or the lens could get fogged up. And it's only by testing that you can show that this will or will not happen. You can do a paperwork exercise, but you won't know. And is that still going on today? So all the sort of various different satellites in space today or being developed, do you think it will still be... There are always new challenges. Um, Mm. I think basically there's a lot of experience now over the last 50 years or so. Uh, And so a lot of things now are routine. For example, Mm. certain plastics are banned for use in spacecraft. Mm. Mm. Um, One, we had uh, a guy called Andy Shepard, who was in charge of Cryosat, I believe, who sent us a a voice message very very frustrated because their data is no longer going to be used by the eu yeah so brexit i'm assuming will have thrown a real spanner oh absolutely with this kind of work yeah yeah um right okay let's well could you just take us through briefly how i mean we've talked about your frustrations with with this kind of work how did so how did you get from being uh aeronautical engineer to setting up wild oats wild oats in 1980 um while i was in holland i was getting more and more interested in natural foods and uh the healing power of foods can you just 
explain what do you mean by natural food because aren't plants and you know potatoes and the, are they natural foods what well the moment you spray them with pesticides there mm. there are compromises okay. Fair. Fair. okay if you feed them hydroponically with just the nutrients you think they need <laughs> um, they're not quite the same thing okay mm. uh, and also um, I got to understand through a, it was a, a thing called macrobiotics basically looking at uh, the dynamics of diet um, you mentioned in your earlier bulletin about planting this time of the year roots that go downwards yeah mm. well uh, in a nutshell on a hot sweltering day such as we've had the last thing you want to do is eat a hearty casserole mm. uh, whereas in winter when it's really freezing and you're very cold and the air condition uh, the heating's broken down you're not really attracted to a salad you might be more interested in a casserole so that that's basically you're balancing your diet with what grows locally, uh, seasonally, and matching your own activities to the qualities of the food. Can I just ask something? While I think of it, I've just discovered something called, I think it's syntropic farming. Does that mean anything to you? No, I'm afraid I'm not right, heard okay. of Right, OK. I, 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 yeah, because it's, I think it's being done in Brazil, and it sounds like it's... Um, it's really, as it were, going with the flow. It's trying to work with the plants. Um, and it's about process rather than things, they're saying. So I think you don't, so obviously you don't use pesticides, mm-hmm. but you're looking at the way this plant grows and trying to maximise the things that help it grow and yep. obviously minimise the things that um, impede it. Um, I'm going to investigate it for future programmes. I just thought I'd ask you just okay. in case yeah, you knew of it. Um, right, sorry, carry on. So you were interested in natural foods. Natural foods and also um, the power of foods in healing. Um, I'd seen a lot of dramatic changes in people's health, including my own. I had a few, how old was I? About 34, 35. And I had a few illnesses that the doctor says, well, at your age, you know, it's going to start and it will just get worse as you get older. And after a few years on a macrobiotic diet, they'd just gone. Oh, you can't cure these. Oh, yes, you can. So uh, I was getting more and more interested in that. And meanwhile, I was getting fed up with the politics of Mm. of the organisations. And... A question by the child of a friend of mine at dinner once. He said, what do you do? I said, I build satellites. And he said, why? (laughs) And it set a whole chain of thought, thinking, well, here we are, able to send messages around the planet. We can talk to Auntie Sue in Australia. And yet, in my experience, the people living next door to each other who can't communicate... We're learning to. We're trying to run before we can walk. We haven't got the basics of society together. We're eating rubbish and expecting to be healthy by paying for drugs. Yeah, yeah? Mm. Uh, and all of this, I was getting more and more fed up with it. And then I just happened to be in Bristol one day, uh, shopping this tiny little shop in Lower Edland Road. Uh, there was a deli that happened to sell natural foods. And I went in there, chatted to the uh, the woman who ran it. And she told me she, she was getting fed up with the business and wanted to sell. Mm. So I asked her how much she was asking for it. 
she told me, and on my European satellite salary, it was peanuts. So I made her an offer there and then, and suddenly I found myself the wow, owner of a shop. Wonderful. <laughs> And the rest, they say, is history. history. Uh, amazing, yeah. So, you'd be, so that was 1980? Yeah. Fantastic. Well, actually, it happened in 79. We bought okay. it, we moved across in July 1980. Right. And we opened on January the 1st, 1981. Wow, fantastic. So what did you start with? What, was it just very small or just a few It was products, a tiny, it was just, well, it was a very small shop, uh, tiny shop and the first thing you would do was gut it and make a lot more space mm. uh, and then we started selling the things that we wanted to eat ourselves mm. which of course nobody had heard of rice cakes polystyrene, polystyrene roof tiles are they? what are they? Yeah. Uh, rice cakes, miso, tamari seaweeds Visionary. pulses Visionary. All, Total, all these yeah. kind of things nobody knew mm. so uh, we thought, oh, this isn't going to work. Uh, so we decided to split the shop and set up a little cafe that showed how you could actually eat these foods. Yeah. And I started cooking classes, giving classes on natural foods and macrobiotic type cookery and things like that. And gradually it took off. And I did learn that you can't be an absolutist you can't sell what you want to. You've got to. So the the philosophy was to seduce the customer in with something they recognised and loved, the and then educate them, and send them out with something that might be a little bit more healthy. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. So, um, what are the various? Uh, where are we? What did I want to talk about in terms of your shop? Um, You've talked about the various ways in which it's it's sustainable. Can you can you take us through what it is about wild oats that makes it such a valuable kind of shop for today? <laughs> well, as it happens, we pioneered zero waste. Did you? Uh, we were the first shop in Bristol that actually had proper bins for uh, dry goods like grains and pulses and all that kind of thing, where you could help yourself. And the philosophy was, if you're an impoverished student, you didn't want to buy a whole bag of uh, peanuts. Mm. You could just get a handful for the day and uh, we'd just wait and price it up. So we had that right from day one. So zero waste there. Also, we were pushing for organic again because mm. to reduce the use of pesticides and also reduce the necessity for drugs. Yeah. I mean, you know, drugs were developed as field medicine. They rescued a person in the battlefield, mm. kept them alive long enough to get them home and acute. give them in the acute, acute disease. Yeah. Yeah. And, and drugs are good for acute disease. Um, mm. If I'm smashed up in a car crash... I wouldn't go to a homeopath as my first choice. Mm. Uh, but for chronic disease, chronic disease is something that builds up slowly. And usually it's because of something you're taking in, be it environmentally or nutritionally, mm. or something you're not having that's allowing the system to break down. So presumably, as well as selling natural foods, are you selling, do you sell plant remedies all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, um, <laughs> for the first seven years, 
I was firmly of the belief you didn't need food supplements or drug or, or herbs or anything. Food would do it. But then through personal experience and experience of my customers, I realized that I had to do a bit more investigation and started stocking remedies that I knew would work. Mm. And it grew from then. Mm. And um, our policy always was, if we recommended something, it was because we thought it would work. If it didn't, you could bring it back and we would refund you or give you something else. And we've always had that guarantee. Brilliant. So we don't just sell supplements. I mean, somebody comes along and tells me, oh, it's just a placebo. And I will say, I don't care. If it gets the person better without using drugs, what the hell? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think I've had had this argument time and time again with my husband, who is very sceptical about all this kind of thing. And uh, no, I agree totally because part of it is about the mind, isn't it? Very much so. Mm. Um, yeah, no, it makes total sense. And I know one of your points was, uh, which we haven't touched on, is just the importance of, I'm sorry, I'm moving back a bit here, but food miles. Because yeah. a lot of your stuff is local as well. Yeah, we, we, we go out of our way to try and source local produce and producers mm. and manufacturers. We've done that right from day one. In the early days... Uh, We wanted tofu and tofu burgers. And there was a guy called Phil Marshall who came along and said, look, I want to set up a business, but I haven't got any money. Now, in those days, I'd still got a few bob left over from coming over from Holland. So I gave him a thousand quid to start off uh, a tofu burger factory. And that became Cauldron Foods, which grew enormously. Uh, he then sold out and it was taken over several times. But we were the first tofu burgers in Bristol and they were manufactured in Bristol. Oh, I love it. Using organic oh, soybeans. Oh, I love, I, I've said this so many times on the show, I love this city so much. And this is one of the reasons why so many, so many amazing things have come out of Bristol. That's so interesting to know. Colton Foods, fantastic. Who would have thought it? Um we're getting slightly, um, we're sort of running out of time. I want to make sure that we've mentioned everything else. There was something else that you mentioned to me, your buy two, take one. Do you yeah. still do that? Yeah. And can you tell us, tell our listeners what that's all about? Okay. Uh, the idea, well, because we've got problems of food banks and mm. so on and so forth, mm. for those who can afford it and would like to contribute, what happens is a customer will buy two products, keep one, and give us the other one, which we then put into a box and send off to local charities. So every month we send off a case of products that can be used in the community. Fantastic. Mike, thank you so much for coming in. It's been fun. Um, Wonderful. Good. Um, And next week I have got uh, Mary Rose Clark, who is a counsellor, coming on, and my daughter, Lola Tinsley. Um, And her background is in philosophy. And they're going to be talking about eco-anxiety and what you can do to to help yourself if you are suffering from it they're both in their 20s um and so we're going to be hearing it from from that perspective so until next week bye bye